the masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show Carl Wood and Company Side chatters, the further we go down, the more convinced I am that magic remains the missing spoke in the wheel of not only history, but life itself. Because you can't properly assess the Elizabethan era, the founding of America, the rocketry program, the tech revolution, and many other aspects of what got us here today without understanding that magic played a major role. Not to mention the important role of magic in the East, as well as the cultures that weren't trampled by the cross because we still see magical thinking and belief systems in the most hard-to-reach corners of this island Earth. All of this speaks to a body of knowledge and thought that I'd like to better understand, as well as the people who explored it to its deepest, sometimes darkest depths. Of these figures, there are few, if any, that have been more impactful than Queen Elizabeth I's court advisor and astrologer, John Dee. As most of the magical characters and secret orders we know today have been heavily influenced by the Anakian system that Dee and Ed Kelly were handed down from on high, and luckily today's guest Jason Louv knows quite a bit about the situation, as he's just released a massive book entitled John Dee and the Empire of Angels, Anakian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World, which clocks in at just over 500 pages when it's all said and done. It's a wonder Jason hasn't been here before, as he's definitely been a popular guy in the magical resurgence for quite some time, having written several other books with titles like Generation Hex, Hyperworlds, Underworlds, and Monsanto vs. the World. He also runs the popular website ultraculture.org and also teaches classes on magic and spirituality at magic.me. A modern magus of the great work, an esoteric adventure extraordinaire, and the glass pyramid of podcast guests. Jason Louv, welcome to the higher side. What's up, man? How you doing? Can't complain, man. Really psyched to do this. Me too. I don't know where you've been all my life, but <laughs> your work definitely is just the sort of stuff I like to get into. Not only did I love this book on D, but I've heard you talking about it a lot lately on Tinfoil Hat and Rune Soup in particular. And you really seem to have an impressive grasp on things that I find to be quite slippery. And to get us started here, since this is our first time, tell us a bit about your path to now. Because just from what I've heard, it seems like a really impressive adventure. Yeah, it's been, it's been an adventure. <laughs> Let's see. So I started investigating magic and spirituality two decades ago now. And while working as a full-time journalist, as a writer... A copywriter. I've also spent that time investigating the world's esoteric and spiritual traditions in a very gonzo fashion, if you will, where I've tried to immerse myself and learn about all of these things. So Sufism, Tantra, yoga, esoteric yoga, Buddhism, Hinduism. I was initiated as a shaman in the foothills of the Himalayas in Nepal. Certainly Western magic, Hermeticism, NLP, Masonry. It's, for me, the most interesting stuff out there because these are 
the traditions that have been handed down for millennia of our ancestors, the conclusions they came to about what life is, how it's best lived, and what they wanted to pass on to further generations. So for me, it's kind of like, well, why would I be interested in anything else in a way? Or certainly, at least, why would I not be interested in that? And this is all stuff that has been hidden for a long, long time, particularly in our culture, and has been reserved for an elite. And now, because of the internet, all of that information is coming out. And so I've really spent that time not only learning everything that I could, but also working to get that information out to the public, just like, for instance, Timothy Leary did with consciousness raising. And, you know, I've tried to do that with magic and bring that stuff out to the public, which has been quite controversial at times. But I truly believe that people should have control over their own lives and people should be reminded that they have a say in reality and that they are powerful, Mm. right? And not powerless. Our culture tells people in every way that it can that they're powerless. And we can get conspiratorial perhaps about why that is. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a conspiracy theorist. So I also think that it tends to be because people like to choose the path of least resistance. But of course, we all know that listeners like to take the higher side. So (laughs) not to be cheesy, but I think we're all on the same page with that, where we're all interested in not only what are the hidden occulted aspects of reality, but how can we participate? How can we dig deeper into reality and live wider, more expanded, more meaningful, more alive lives? That's my interest in it. Very cool, man. Yeah. It's just like such a wild ride you've been on. The Golden Dawn, Hermeticism, Freemasonry, Tantra, just all of these bodies of work are so deep and so complex that even to get into one of them is a difficult challenge. And That Nepal chapter, of course, is intriguing. And I got to ask, so when you were shamaning it up in the Nepal Tibetan area, did they show you the tunnels to the inner earth or no? (laughs) That would be classified. But (laughs) I did go up into, you know, I made it up 13,000 feet into the Himalayas. I went to the shrine where Ra meditated at the beginning of the Ramayana War for the cult strength to go into battle. And, you know, I've seen some crazy things over there. I saw the birthplace of not just temples to, but the birthplace of the god Shiva, the god Ganesh, and then hanging out with shamans and agoris and Naga Babas and Nath Babas. And, you know, I'll tell you, they definitely showed me the tunnels to the internal world, the inner world mm-hmm. of consciousness. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right on, right on. Well, if I ever make a trip over there, maybe I can get that secret handshake from you before I go. But <laughs> To uh, get into the new book, you know, my entry into magic type material has been via the conspiracy world, which can be a bit sensationalist, but it showed me enough to know that the elite have found these esoteric subjects very important behind closed doors. And the most commonly cited example is always, well, John D was Queen Elizabeth's right hand man, but not a lot of people can take it deeper than that. So I was really psyched when this book came out because you certainly can. And maybe talk to us a bit about D and the context for who he was before we get to that provocative Enochian chapter of the big story. So yeah, one of the crazy things about being a journalist and then writing a book on history, 
and going back to the actual historical records is the truth is always stranger than the weirdest conspiracy theories, right? Mm -hmm. And it's historically validated and you can just read that and it's just sitting in libraries and in academic databases in texts that nobody reads. But it's also so bizarre, right? So you have to think of Dee as like the Stephen Hawking of his day, right? He was the biggest scientific prodigy of Elizabethan England. So we're talking 1500s. He was a mathematical genius. He spent his academic career learning in England and in Europe and studying everything, right? This was a period of history where it was still possible to know everything in the sense that you could read all of the printed information that was available at that time because we were just coming out of the Dark Ages. And as an academic, as a thinker, as an intellectual, Dee was interested in understanding the big picture. He wanted to know everything. He wanted to know the mind of God. And so to do that, he studied mathematics and astrology and astronomy and optics and naval science, hermeticism and the occult. And for him, that was all one thing. It was just how does reality work? If we're all living in the mind of God, as the hermeticist would say, then how does God's mind work? work. And if we can understand how God's mind works, could we perhaps work with it? Could we perhaps go along with the current of reality instead of against it and do things that would appear to people who didn't have that knowledge to be magical, right? So that's really the place that Dee was coming from. But he also was a government servant in England. He worked as part of Elizabeth's court, in which capacity he was constantly called on to defend Elizabeth against attacks by rival sorcerers. He was often called on to draw up astrological charts for timings for various royal events, including Elizabeth's coronation. He was responsible for creating the idea of the British Empire. He actually coined the phrase British Empire, or he claimed rather that it was actually given to him by an angel in an occult session, which is something they don't tell you in high school. <laughs> and he not only came up with this idea, but he laid out all the schematics necessary for turning England, which at that point was a poor developing world country, into the greatest empire the world has ever known, the empire on which the sun never sets, hmm. which controlled over a fourth of the planet at its height and was called the empire on which the sun never sets because the sun was always shining somewhere within the empire's domains. He came up with all of the schematics necessary to do that and push Elizabeth for English colonization of America and the New World in kind of a cold war with Spain, where he said that if England controls the New World before Spain and the Catholic bloc does, then not only do we win economically, but we win spiritually in as much as we're able to then set the destiny of the planet going forward, which they did, right? That's what happened. Spain's economic might was broken very quickly partly because of the English defeat of the Spanish Armada, which Dee also had a hand in, and many said he might have done by magic. Hmm. So he was right there in the thick of it. He also brought knowledge of mathematics to the English public for the first time. Geometry, nobody knew about any of this stuff. He established a scientific library in England that was five times the size of Oxford and Cambridge, and he really laid the foundation for modern science to occur by educating the next generation in the STEM track, as it were, which hadn't been available in England up till then. He made science hip. He made it possible. He provided the books and he taught people everything that he knew so that the next generation and the generation after that could create modern science as we know it. So he's right there. He's the architect of the modern world. And that's before he spent 10 years 
dedicating his time to speaking to angels. Mm-hmm. So I always say that, you know, if John D is kind of like the Stephen Hawking of his day, you have to imagine what it would have been like if Stephen Hawking at the age of 50, at the height of his career, having all the accolades of society and the government and the ears of everyone in power said, well, you know what, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to dedicate the next 10 years of my scientific career to smoking DMT and contacting aliens. Mm -hmm. Right. That's kind of what the deal was. Yeah, man, that is a great overview. And now this is a bit of a tangent, but you write a lot about the history and the things going on that maybe drew the Queen's attention away from D at times on his trajectory. For example, alchemy, which is a buzzword I've always been intrigued by, but you write about the alchemy pursuits in that day and that these guys, Thomas Charnock and Cornelius de Lanois, were players in it. And I thought this was interesting. You say Cornelius actually promised the royal court he could produce the equivalent of $7.9 million in gold, diamonds, and precious stones per year, which just makes me wonder, do you really make those kind of claims to the queen if alchemy is the myth it's portrayed to be? Well, it was before they had the internet. You can't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a very human story in a way where alchemy was a big deal at the time. I mean, there was an alchemical economic arms race going on. So what's the sales pitch of alchemy, right? It's that you can take base metals and turn them into gold, that there's some chemical process that hasn't yet been discovered by which you can transmute metals. The idea that they had at that time was that all metals are different permutations of one prima materia, right? There must be some underlying metal behind all metals. And if you just submit a metal to the right chemical processes, you could change it into another metal, right? Now, now we know this isn't possible, at least not with the technology they had at the time. It was a false scientific theory, but they didn't know that at the time. All they knew is they thought it might be possible. They didn't know how to do it, but that didn't necessarily mean that somebody didn't know how to do it or that they could discover the secrets. So at this time, everyone in Europe was in an arms race to figure out alchemy because whoever could get that secret then would have an economic advantage over all the other countries. So what ended up happening is at the time we had a lot of roving alchemists, people who claimed they could do it, shifty characters. They would show up to royal courts, in this case, Elizabeth's court, and say, oh, yeah, I can figure that out. No problem. Give me uh, $10 million and set me up with a laboratory and I'll figure that out for you in a few months, no problem. And then a few months go by, they don't hear anything, and then they go knock on the door of this alchemist in question, and they vacated the premises, right? Mm. This happened a lot. Now, D was also interested in alchemy, but he was interested in it for the real reasons, in the sense that he thought that it was about the human soul. So it's not about turning lead into gold, although he investigated that also. It's about turning an unawakened and confused and scattered and powerless human being into an enlightened sage, an awakened person. That's what alchemy really is and what alchemy still is. And so D was always underpaid. He was always looking for money. So he was always trying to interest the monarchs of England and Europe in the idea of true alchemy and would show up to their courts and they would say, can you make us gold? And he would say, no, but I can give you wisdom and understanding and enlightenment and spiritual realization. And they would show him the door, right? <laughs> yeah. Not so interesting. Right. Man, and you mentioned earlier him defending the queen from rival sorcerers. You write about a lot of little threads going on at the time. D had a longtime nemesis in John Prestall, 
and that France was pushing the visions of their guy, Nostradamus, and you call this sort of an occult Cold War. And it all seems just so foreign to today's landscape. I mean, how public was this esoteric or mystical element of the power structure back then? Well, is it really that foreign to today's landscape? <laughs> I'm not sure it is. But here's the deal with this, right? Magic, in some senses, is really about controlling the narrative of reality, right? So let's consider astrology or prophecy. Now, whatever you think of astrology or prophecy, you know, they're not scientifically valid, but consider these things from the propaganda angle. If you can draw charts up on somebody and say, well, Queen Elizabeth is going to die in five years, and then that gets publicized, well, that affects public perception. And if you can affect public perception and reframe how people are looking at reality, well, you've just done magic because then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's the same today. I mean, this is what the media does. This is what mass marketing and advertising does. And I know this very well because I used to work on Madison Avenue, right? It's like, I know those techniques, the dark arts, I use them for good, right? But <laughs> that's all magic. I see all of this as magic. And I define magic as a spontaneously emergent property of how human beings make meaning and attempt to make meaning for other people. So you have to imagine that at this time, there was a hot war between Catholicism and Protestantism, the Catholic bloc in Europe, and then the Protestant countries, meaning England, which had just gone Anglican. Henry VIII had exited from the Catholic Church. The Netherlands were also Protestant at this time. And these countries were like the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars, trying to survive the oncoming punishing efforts of the Catholic evil empire. And they were also competing to see who was going to control the new world because whoever got that got all the resources of the new world and then would have the permanent economic advantage going forward. And D was the one who really figured that out. At the same time, while this hot war was going on, this economic and political and military war where there were military skirmishes, there was also the occult war, and that was not just in the propaganda department, but in the sense that the Catholic and the Protestant sides both employed straight-out occultists, people who were doing curses, people who were doing protective magic, people who were, for instance, the Catholic sorcerers were always making voodoo dolls of Elizabeth. And we shouldn't forget that the whole thing of saints and fetishes and icons and prayers to get specific effects, to get specific things done. All that is hard baked into Catholicism. And that's something that we see, for instance, in perhaps the African traditional religions that were influenced by Catholicism, like Vudan, where that's made very apparent. But it's in mainstream, well, not mainstream, but it's certainly part of Catholicism in that people have always been doing that type of thing behind closed doors in the Catholic world, always. It has magical technology baked into it. But Protestantism does as well. When you think about the emphasis on the whole sales pitch of Protestantism really is a cult in the sense that the sales pitch of Protestantism in all of its branches is that you don't need the intermediary of the church. Mm -hmm. And this is dialed up less in Anglicanism and more in things like Presbyterianism and the Baptists. But the whole idea of Protestantism is make contact with Christ and God on your own with the implication being that they'll be on your side and the reality will then be on your side because you're directly following what it says in the Bible. You're following the script. That's what the Catholics didn't do. They didn't rely on textual primacy. The Protestants did. 
So these are two competing metamagical systems, as William Burroughs might have put it. It's two people with two very different ideas about how to get God on your good side fighting. And one of the ways they're fighting is through straight out ritual and sorcery. And I'm not convinced that ever stopped, by the way, Mm -hmm. to be perfectly frank. (laughs) Well, touche. That was going to be my next question, because, of course, we can broaden magic out to mean influence and propaganda and marketing. It's definitely in those soups. But in a traditional sense, I'm curious if you think we still have that same type of esoteric thread amongst today's elite. I don't think George Bush went through skull and bones without getting some of it. I think it's interesting that Michael Bloomberg is behind the Mithraeum project in London. There might be something there. But the threads that suggest today's public-facing world leaders are into ceremonial magic or direct spiritual contact... I guess they seem pretty thin on the surface. Are they just better at hiding it? Or has the tradition sort of been lost even at the highest levels? Well, it's not just elites, right? It's everyone. Mm -hmm. Let's just look at the 2016 election where we had these two competing magical groups where on one side you had the leftist witchcraft block where people were hexing the president and hexing Steve Bannon and all this stuff. And we have very left-wing ideas about how magic in the world works, so emphasis on goddess-type spirituality, the importance of nature, Wicca, the importance of LGBTQI and people of color, and all of these views on reality. And then on the other hand, we had this whole Keck thing with the alt-right and all of them using magic, and then these people essentially conducting an open magical war in the streets and on the internet to the point where it spilled into everything. And we had at the same time people like Steve Bannon publicly name-checking the occultist Julius Evola in a speech to the Vatican. And even Donald Trump, by the way. I was shocked the other day. I was at the library and I was looking through Donald Trump's books. And there's a lot of stuff about Carl Jung in there Hmm. and archetypes. There's a lot of stuff about the power of positive thinking and the ability of thoughts to manifest reality. I mean, look, here's how I've come to see it. Magic is just part of being human. It's part of the human experience, particularly if you consider religion magic. I mean, religion is just the idea that if you do what the church says or what the religious structure says, then life will go good for you. Well, that's magic too, or more sorceric things where people are trying to do it on their own. Look, it's all magic. It's all people trying to control chaos and bring order out of chaos. And human beings are fundamentally pattern-seeking creatures, and they're fundamentally pattern-weaving creatures. So just like a spider creates a web and a snail creates a snail shell, well, human beings make magic, right? Meaning that they, with anything available to them, physical or spiritual, will attempt to weave the order that they want out of the chaos that they see. Mm. And unless one is able to take the perhaps higher path of simply letting go into chaos and the more mystical path of just accepting reality as it is without trying to control it, which is perhaps the true magic. Well, this is what human beings do. They weave order. So I don't necessarily see it even as a conspiratorial thing. I just think it's baked in to the human experience. But of course, people are going to come into conflict. And governments will, of course, look for any angle whatsoever to get an advantage over their rivals or to hold power. Why wouldn't they? You know, we would almost be angry if they didn't. If our government wasn't, for instance, looking for advantage over Russia, which has always been engaged in psychic warfare, and even currently, I don't know if you're aware of Alexander Dugin. I've heard the name. So Dugin is 
kind of a modern evil John D. You know, he's often called Putin's Rasputin, and he's Putin's occult advisor in a way. And that sounds silly until you realize that he's also the guy that architected the annexation of Crimea. And he's the guy that came up with all of the political propaganda warfare methods that were likely responsible for helping at least swing the U.S. election and has been conducting fifth column guerrilla warfare in the U.S. to completely destabilize and destroy the United States political narrative and cohesiveness was perhaps quite successful and was really behind the alt-right along with lots of other protest movements. The whole Russian strategy is to covertly support and amp up any dissident movement on the ground, whether it's on the left or the right. They really don't care what the politics are as long as it causes more chaos. Mm-hmm. This is the Russian propaganda strategy for destabilizing their enemies from within. So it's still going on. It's going on all around us. We're living in it. It never stopped. D is a great way to look at that because when you understand D, you understand how central this stuff has been to not just governments, but life. Yeah. Human but history. History is just the record of people trying to make reality in their image and then coming into war and many times bloody war over what that should look like. You know, one of my favorite things that Robert Anton Wilson ever said is that reality is the line where rival shamans have fought to a standstill. Hmm. That's history. <laughs> yeah, man, I like that. And it is funny, just no matter what era you're talking about, spycraft and sorcery, they definitely seem connected. And let's get into the Anakian chapter of the D story, because this is the real meat of the book, and it is really interesting. We'll have to bring in Edward Kelly, of course. But what I find so fascinating about Anakian is just that, yes, there were a lot of grimoires circulating at the time, but instead of translating and interpreting some older text. This entire system and the complex language it's delivered in all come from years of communication with angels, as they're called. And I think it might stand alone in that regard, at least as far as we know, right? Stand alone in what sense? Like a whole system being derived directly from spirit contact as opposed to like trying to translate older texts from a previous age. It is in the sense of the Western esoteric tradition. The Western esoteric tradition or the occult tradition is primarily a grimoire tradition. It's been based around people cobbling together grimoires of ways to contact spirits and ways that have worked for them and writing down their records so that other people could perhaps refine them or maybe get results from them. But D and Kelly's system, you're right, is unique in that it was delivered top down. Yeah. And the angels looked at all that stuff and said, oh, no, this is all wrong. This is like monkeys trying to speak English, right? (laughs) Let's give you the real deal. And they're very clear on that. They basically said, okay, you guys have been trying to do magic in this very fumbling way for a long time, meaning the human race. None of this is really that valid. Nice try. Nice (laughs) try. Let's give you the real thing. And that's what Enochian was. But the broader context on that, by the way, Again, it's another case of this stuff hiding in plain sight in the sense that let's just take the big three monotheist religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. If we consider that all of these religions, actually Christianity the least, but all of them are derived from what people believe to be at least direct messages from angels, not just any spiritual being, but angels specifically, or God, as it were, the God that controls the angels, in the sense that Judaism primarily comes out of Moses speaking to Jehovah at the burning bush and delivering the Ten Commandments and is full of records of angelic contact. 
that Christianity is derived from this being sending a human emissary, in this case, Christ, and that also revelation is a direct transmission from talking to angels, and that primarily the Genesis story of Islam is that the prophet Muhammad sat in a cave, and the archangel Gabriel, who appears in these other religions and is also one of the primary angels in Dian Kelly's sessions, shows up and says, okay, just take dictation, I'm going to give you the Quran. Well, when we consider that all three of these religions are made up of people who derive their primary views on what reality and life are from angelic transmissions, and of course we can add Mormonism and some other ones as well, that's the majority of people on the planet. If we just take Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that's 61% of the planet and rising as Islam is growing exponentially and will grow tremendously by 2050. Well, that's the majority of people on the planet. So Mm. even if you don't take that seriously and you think that it's self-delusion or misleading people or superstition, which is a fair argument, you still need to understand this because we're talking about the majority of people on the planet, the people that we need to coexist with, the people that we need to get along with. In my opinion, we don't give people respect unless we're willing to at least take the way they view the world seriously on their own terms as they present it at least temporarily, to be able to walk in other people's shoes and see reality through their eyes. Well, this is how we give people respect. And if we're going to live together (laughs) and not kill each other, then we need to do that. Hmm. But that's shocking to realize, well, D is not really a cult. He's not really an exception. He's kind of the rule, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. That is an interesting way to look at it because I basically was thinking about this as so unique. And then, yeah, a lot of religions are derived from one person saying they had some spiritual contact and we're all stuck here on earth with no real context. And we all have amnesia. So we're like, yeah, tell us what that spirit said. And like, here we are, you know, with these religions basically being the most dominant thing we have. Right. Let's get into Edward Kelly, because everybody knows the John D. name, and then you go a little deeper, and you really should know the Edward Kelly name, because he couldn't really have done this without Edward Kelly. So I guess we should fold him in and maybe talk about those scrying sessions themselves. The thing that does make D. and Kelly unique outside of that history, really unique, almost without parallel, is the amount of scientific rigor that D. brought to this. He was a trained at least proto-scientist. The scientific revolution hadn't happened yet, but he was very, very trained in the scientific tools of his day. And they kept very ornate records. And with these religions that I've talked about, it's not a case of somebody coming down and saying, okay, God talked to me and he tells you what to do. You just have to do what I say. Well, Dee and Kelly, they delivered not just messages from the angels, but they delivered a system, Enochian magic, which was meant for other people to repeat on a scientific basis and make contact on their own. That's a shocking turn in world history. (laughs) Yes. That had never been done before outside of the Grimoire tradition, which wasn't getting very good results, right? But here's the thing. D was a hardhead. He was like a scientist, a compulsive rationalist, kind of like an IT guy in his outlook. And anyone who's ever been around the occult knows that people who are too rational and too compulsively analytical often have a hard time directly engaging with spiritual experience because they have the burden of not only trying to make the experience happen, but constantly analyzing it as it's happening, Mm -hmm. which forms a barrier. And this is why meditation can be so important for people like that, so they can learn how to get out of their own way. But 
D up to the age of 50, he was fascinated with the occult, but he hadn't been able to get it to work. And in fact, in the 1560s, actually contemplated suicide because he'd been trying to contact the Archangel Michael. He couldn't get it to work. And he had come to the conclusion that it was probably because he was a bad person. They didn't want to talk to him. But the pedal really hit the floor, as it were, when he met Edward Kelly. And Edward Kelly was half D's age. He was an itinerant scryer, which is a psychic who uses a crystal ball to get their visions. He was an alcoholic. He had had his ears cut off for forging coins. A cloud of brimstone and scandal followed him where he had been accused of necromancy, you know, summoning corpses from the grave, summoning demons, a lot of which he had actually done. And Dee writes in his diaries that the day that Kelly shows up at Mortlake, which was Dee's house in southwest London, the moon turned blood red. Hmm an omen of things to come. Dee's family hated Kelly. His wife despised him. The kids didn't like him very much. But Dee realized that he could do it, that Kelly had the knack. He was not only a gifted psychic and scryer, but he was delivering information which seemed to check out very well with the things that Dee already knew and that was of profoundly good quality. Now, later commentators have said, well, Kelly could have just been reading the books in Dee's library and regurgitating it back. But they formed a working partnership, and they spent the next seven years basically doing nothing but occult rituals two, three times a day to open up contact to the angelic realms. And what that looked like was them sitting in Dee's study with the doors closed in daylight, with the sun rays falling into a scrying glass, a little piece of crystal, and Dee praying at length for... God and the angels to look kindly upon him, to forgive his sins, and to deliver higher wisdom and understanding to them. And then after Dee did this, Kelly would go into a trance state, looking into the crystal, which is a method for entering trance, and then would start saying what he was seeing. Dee would write it down, and then Dee would ask questions for clarification. And through that, over many years, they began to piece together a broadband connection to the angelic realms where they were constantly seeing spiritual figures. The angels were giving them quests to do missions, interacting with them directly. And then over the first few years, delivering the Enochian magical system, which is a much more precise set of instructions for establishing more stable connection with the angelic world. Part of which is the Enochian language, which they purported to be the language spoken by humans before the fall from the Garden of Eden and the language spoken by angels themselves, which could be used to speak to angels on their own terms. Hmm. Well, you know, the personal apocalypse, they say, seems to be a big part of the magical journey. So I guess I'm not surprised Kelly was a mess. And this audience doesn't really need a reminder that I'm turned off by most things of a biblical flavor. And as exciting as this sort of communication with spirits is, when I start reading it and it's all about repent and obey the Lord and warnings of revelation are near, I'm just kind of like, really? This is the great insight? But to put this in the form of a question, you write that when Queen Mary died and Queen Elizabeth came to power, the final Catholic hold on England vanished and that she saw religions as tools of the state. And I completely agree with that. So what did she think when her occult advisor is saying that he's speaking with angels that want to manifest the book of Revelation? Well, Dee had kind of fallen from grace by that time. He was still close with Elizabeth, but Dee was a true believer. Mm -hmm. He really believed this stuff. He was totally sincere, sincere in a way that 
is challenging, as you said, for a lot of modern students of the occult. And one of the reasons for that is, I think, particularly in America, not so much. You know, the occult world is very different depending on where you go in the world. You know, in England and the UK, occultists tend to come from secular and atheistic backgrounds. And so they have a very, the real challenge with English students of the occult is actually, you know, English people don't take anything seriously, Hmm. let alone claims of direct contact with spiritual beings and things like that. So the English occult world is much more cynical than the American one. But the American spiritual landscape is dominated by evangelical Christianity in a way that the UK and the Europe just aren't. The UK and Europe are profoundly more secular than America. America is not a secular country. This is a country that was founded by religious refugees, and it's a country that religious refugees from all the world's spiritual traditions still come to to seek religious freedom. Because of that, a lot of people who are occult students in the U.S. now have grown up in evangelical households and often look to the occult as a way to rebel against their, rightly so in many cases, rebel against their oppressive Christian upbringing and to seek personal meaning and power on their own terms. What I discovered writing this book is that most of the modern forms of the occult from Crowley on also come directly out of the narrative of evangelical Christianity. When you consider that Aleister Crowley, whatever you think of him, we really have to look to him as the progenitor of modern occultism coming out of the Golden Dawn tradition. Crowley was raised in the Plymouth Brethren, the Exclusive Brethren, which was a religious sect started by John Nelson Darby. And Darby is the person who came up with the idea of the rapture. He was the person that came up with the idea that not only should scripture be taken literally, but should form the guiding light of public policy. And that it's the responsibility, just like Dee said, Darby thought that it was the responsibility of the people in power to make revelation happen in order to steward this final period of history to help Christ return sooner. Darby's evangelicism became the dominant religion in America. Dispensationalist Christianity is what Darby's ideas formed from the turn of the century onward, became through the circulation of the Schofield Reference Bible in America, became the guiding myth of Christian evangelicals and the reason why American evangelicals supported the birth of Israel and pushed so hard for it became the reason why Ronald Reagan believed it in the 80s, that it was the role of government to help the apocalypse happen. George Bush believed that his wars were divinely ordained in Revelation. John Bolton currently believes it. Mike Pence sure as hell believes it. In a way, that narrative has been the guiding narrative of American politics for over a hundred years. When you consider that Crowley, who's the progenitor of the occult, which on the surface looks like the resistance to that, came right out of the same group, studied within Darby's group, and then took all those assumptions straight into the Golden Dawn techniques and his experiments with John Dee's system, and that from Crowley we can trace a straight line into Anton LaVey and Satanism and the modern witchcraft movement straight from Jack Parsons and all of this stuff. So the crazy thing that I came to realize about the American spiritual landscape is on one hand, we have the evangelical right, a Pew Forum study in 2006, 
came to the conclusion that one in three Americans believe that we are living the final days, that Christ is coming back in our lifetime, and that the ongoing support of the state of Israel is necessary for the apocalypse to occur, and that therefore American foreign policy in the Middle East is necessary to hasten the eschaton or the return of Christ. One in three Americans and the Left Behind books, which are straight out of our dramatization of Darby's dispensationalist views are the most read books in America after the Bible before Stephen King. And that, well, in America, when people rebel, they tend to, unless they become pure atheists, if they're spiritual rebels, well, then they go into Satanism, witchcraft, the New Age, and all of that stuff comes straight out of Crowley, which goes right back to the same place. It's all this one group, this idea of hastening the apocalypse, and the people who think that they're rebelling against this are just taking on the oppositional role in the same damn story, the same game. As I put it in the book, you can't rebel against the popularity of Star Wars by putting on a Darth Vader mask, right? Mm. That's just silly. But that's what people tend to do. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a bit of a tangent, but... Well, I had that exact Vader quote written down for later in terms of uh, Crowley and the way he used the term antichrist and stuff. But I mean, yeah, great points. And... It all is very ingrained. You can't really decouple it from the evangelical stuff. But I'm really interested in what non-human intelligences say or what they are, what they're like, or really anything that would help me to flesh out a personality profile for these things. And they talk a lot to John D. and Edward Kelly. What can you say to maybe help us better understand the beings themselves? Because they didn't seem to fit into the spiritual hierarchies of their day, but things like these angels place in the spirit world or their thoughts and ideas, things like this. So let's talk about angels. If you want to fold in my own outside of the scope of this book, if I was to answer this question from my own personal experience and not from D specifically, my personal experience is the spirit world, whatever you want to call, is as varied and chaotic as the human world. Mm -hmm. If you consider the gods and spirits of all of the world's cultures, that's a lot of stuff, all of which as culturally idiosyncratic and different as people are. And there are similarities, but there's a lot of differences too. So evangelical angels are not going to act in the same way as, for instance, family ancestral spirits in Thailand, right? Those are just not the same thing. They're the same in that they're both perhaps spirits in the same way that me and George Bush are both people. Right. It might generally be the same category, perhaps, but even with spirits, I'm not even sure that's quite the same. It's kind of like saying, well, me and a fox are both alive. We're both mammals. Yeah. But that's kind of where the similarity ends. And this is a mistake, by the way, that chaos magic falls into way too much. And people who come at magic from the postmodern lens will often come to the conclusion that it's all the same and it's just the human mind interacting with the great infinite. Well, no, it isn't. The details matter. They're not just cultural archetypes on the same experience. I don't think that's true. The details do matter. So in terms of angels, right, let's talk about Dee and Kelly's angels. When we talk about angels now, what do we think about? Perhaps Hallmark cards, rosy-cheeked carobs, New Age channeled angels who come down from the sky to tell you 2012 was just around the corner, or I guess they don't say that anymore, but (laughs) you know, that type of thing, right? Everything's going to be great in the future. Right. Precious moment figurine type stuff. Right. 
Now, the angels that Dee and Kelly are talking about are like giants with heads of suns, beings that are appearing with multiple pupils in each eye, covered in clouds of wings, the wings filled with eyes, furious, wrathful angels, loving angels, angels that are often female, seductive female beings, the scarlet woman, the daughter of fortitude, what Crowley later called Babylon. And at one point, they even meet God. And God is not an old man with a white beard up in the clouds. God is a whale covered with eyes from head to toe, from the mouth of which emits a deafening sound that Dean Kelly say is like a cave of roaring lions. And they go into it and see reality peeled back, the 30 aethers of reality unveiled from within the mouth of the whale. So that's a little different from the Hallmark version. <laughs> yeah. Very Lovecraftian almost. Yeah, less tentacles. You know. <laughs> right. More eyeballs, less tentacles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were pretty much on point with what angels do in the Bible. So it wasn't that they were outside of the spiritual hierarchies of the day or different from angels as they'd been reported. It's just that the experience was a lot different than it said in the manual. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so... Something I've heard you say that I thought was really interesting in terms of the way they conceive of man is that they seem to be pretty heartbroken over the fall of man. And this kind of gets into free will. You know, that's a thing that gets brought up a lot, especially when talking to people about astrology or prediction magic. It's like, well, how does free will fit into this? But from the angel's perspective, it's like very frustrating that man can just choose to not obey. Here we are trying to give you the goddamn language of the angels trying to give you the keys to the castle and you can't wake up before noon. You can't put down the bottle. Like, come on, humans, like, get with it. This is why we kind of hate you a little bit. And it's like those little nuances, I just think those are fascinating. Totally. Well, you have to see it from the perspective of the angels, right? Where from their perspective, it's like, look, everything was so easy. We created this for you. All you had to do is stay in reverence of your parents and your source. Instead, humanity constantly chooses the path of least resistance and chooses sin and chooses evil because the whole thing about humans is humans are given free will. Angels don't have free will. Animals don't have free will. But human beings who are in between those two classes of beings do have free will. And this is something, by the way, that it's not just Christianity, but all of the world's spiritual traditions tell us for the most part. I mean, Sufism says it. Buddhism says it. Both Sufism and Tibetan Buddhism are very, very clear on the point that the great thing about human beings is that on one hand, they have a body, and on the other hand, they have consciousness, they have free will. So again, between the spirit world and the animals, but as long as you have a body, which is still alive, then you still have time to make new decisions, right? You can still course correct and choose what vibratory rate you're going to aim for, which of course will determine what happens when you die, whether you believe that that's ending up in some other place or simply as the Buddhists do, that it determines that, you know, the vibratory frequency that you take with you into death and perhaps through the intermediary bardo period will then by necessity match the vibratory frequency that you're next born into. So that if you die in a state of anger and hatred and you're not able to let go of it in the intermediary period, the psychedelic trip called the bardo, in between lives, then your soul will be attracted to parents in your next life that match that frequency. Because how could it be any other way? Yeah. 
and this is the Buddhist view of karma, right? But the Buddhists say that a human incarnation is the best thing you can get in all of the 10,000 myriad worlds, because only with a human body can you not only have consciousness and free will, but a physical body, which allows you to course correct and modulate your frequency by your own actions and decisions, which isn't that what magic is, right? Mm -hmm. So the angels kind of have the same view where humans have free will. They can't override it. They can threaten. They can cajole. They can bribe. They can say, look, just be good for God's sake and follow what we say, follow God, and everything is fine. I mean, it's like from their perspective, it's like, look, God created all this. This is God. The world you're in is God. And God has given you free will as an experiment. But it's like, why are you focusing on petty things like money and status when you could instead focus on the creator of this whole thing? Don't you think that if you focus on the source of the movie, that the movie will get good for you, but instead you focus on the shadows on the wall, to use Plato's cave metaphor. <laughs> and this frustrates them to no end. But they can't override human free will because that's against the rules of the game. Then humans wouldn't be humans. So the angels, yes, are quite heartbroken that humanity has constantly chosen the path of least resistance, but they can't override it. And this is kind of the great tragedy of the human experiment. But by the same token, without free will, we wouldn't be humans. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess one more question for you, just because I've heard people talking about this too, and it's like, where do we put certain influence in terms of D and the modern world and him having a hand in that? Yeah, we talked about Empire. I'm curious about your thoughts on Silicon Valley technology, computer technology, and how it relates to magic, because I've had a previous guest talk about the first multi-use computer. Of course, it can be hard to identify the first computer, but if you were to identify it or define it as multi-use, it would be this computer that was called ENIAC, which is phonetically fairly similar. And now we have the D-Wave computer, which could be described as like John D. Waving. <laughs> That's funny. That's how it's been kind of symbolically described to me but even the creator of the d-wave computer has equated it to you know talking to spirits on some kind of technological altar or something do you think that if we're going to talk about d's influence in the modern world that it's fair to talk about computer technology as an element of that yeah well you know as i say in the book information technology you know alan turing who created the computer revolution alan turing relied in creating computational theory on informational theory, which comes from Gottfried Leibniz. And Leibniz got the foundations of his informational theory from Raymond Lull, who was a 12th century Franciscan monk who wrote the first novel, who claimed to have a waking vision of Christ in which he saw the entire universe laid out as a nested informational structure, which is a direct perception into the hermetic worldview. So if you trace it back, we owe the existence of personal computer to a guy's vision of Christ in the 12th century. <laughs> but you trace it forward. I mean, look, Steve Jobs, you know, the personal computer, the Mac, you know, Jobs spent years doing acid. And, you know, he went to India to look for a Neem Karoli Baba. And he was a spiritual seeker. And really that whole baby boomer generation, you know, immersed in psychedelics and mysticism and all of those experiences. And that whole worldview was embedded into the informational technology and personal computer revolution that came out of that generation. But just a few months ago, I presented in London with Google's Artists and Machine Intelligence program, 
with Kenrick McDowell at the Serpentine Gallery in London, where I was talking about how we need to look at artificial intelligence as we go forward into it. And we need to be very careful about how we model super intelligences because we're about to go into a world where the gods and monsters are very real mm-hmm. in the forms of AI. I think that if we bring in these assumptions, like if we turn AI into a punishing Old Testament God, because without thinking about it, we encode an ethical structure into it that comes out of Western dominator culture, for instance, we're going to be in hot water. Mm. It's just going to repeat the same cycle of empire and abuse on a much grander scale, perhaps. And that's what people are doing right now. I mean, we've got a thousand companies working on AI in this massive arms race, and they're all optimizing those algorithms to extract value and money and to repeat the fundamental assumptions of global capitalism. Now, I argue that if we're going to have an AI, make it an all-compassionate Buddha for no God's sake. Make it Avalokiteshvara. Make it concerned with decreasing human suffering and the health of the network of humanity as a whole instead of maximizing value extraction or punishment. I mean, look, if you took the Old Testament and you had a machine intelligence read it and put it into code, you're going to have a machine intelligence building hells for people. No, that's not what we want. Do not, for the love of fuck, put those cultural assumptions into an AI. Put something like Buddhism and compassion for all sentient life into an AI. And so that's kind of where I I think my very uh, bizarre and specialist set of skills is rather applicable right now. Yeah, man. Well, I am glad I asked you. And it's just another example of how everything does start with the mind. Everything starts with ideas and philosophy, and then they're brought down to this plane and they can have massive consequences. And that's going to play a role with AI, like you said. So, man, (laughs) this has been awesome. Clearly, we barely scratched the surface of this book of the Anakian system and just the massive influence these threads seem to have had. Of course, we're still in the middle of the story, so we'll see where it goes. And hopefully we can do this again. But until that time, remind the people about your website and classes and all the ways that they can dig deeper into your larger body of work. Absolutely. So my website is jasonluv.com. My last name is spelled L-O-U-V, V's in Victor. So jasonluv.com. And you can see all my books there. You can see my classes at magic.me. I have classes on every facet of magic you can think of astral projection, chaos magic, ceremonial magic. There's a new Enochian class that went up this week. There's tons and tons of stuff there, video trainings. Also, all of my social media is there, so please follow me on social media. I'm at Jason Louv on Twitter. Please follow me there. And I have a special gift for you, hmm. which is a free class on magic, as we should be thinking about these things. And the free class, which is a seven-day email course, which comes loaded with video trainings on meditation, a book on sigils, guided meditations on achieving magical consciousness and magical empowerment, a podcast, lots and lots and lots of goodies, all free. You can get that very easily. Just take out your phone and text the word shaman, S-H-A-M-A-N, to the phone number 44222. So that's shaman to the phone number 44222. 222. It'll come back and ask you for your email address. You put that in, it'll send you the goodies. Ah, very cool, man. And how synchronistic. The number I seem to see everywhere is 42. There you go. The answer to life, the universe, and everything. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So this has been a great time. You know, the more I learn, the dumber I feel. So thanks for contributing to that. And it's been a real pleasure, man. Much respect. Take care out there. 
Thank you. It was a big honor to be on the show. It was a great conversation. Heck yeah. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Abracadabra and hallelujah, boys and girls. Jason Louv dropping knowledge like it ain't no thing. Clearly, he has done a lot of work here. The book is really a feat. I'm also really loving how some of these shows just happen to come out in a really cross-referential order. It's like we had Tolek, and then with Michael Wan, the term Tolek came up phonetically as a Native American ambassador type of role. Just interesting. But this show about D sort of ties back to Tracy Twyman, but it's definitely a nice compliment to Tobias Churton, the show we did about Crowley. So if you care about these figures, I think we hit a nice one-two punch with those. Jason is a bit more objective, and Tobias really seems to romanticize the man, Aleister Crowley. But I thought it made the whole show really entertaining. I liked his passion. But also... We just talked to Michael about John D and the Susquehanna River and technology, and then bam, we get a little more in-depth on that particular thread. It's hard to connect the green children of Woolpit to much, unless they tumbled out of a hidden hyperspace kingdom. Maybe that's why the Templars were so involved. But anyway, good stuff lately. I'm quite proud of the string of shows that we're on, for the most part, and I have the next three recorded already. And I think they're all knockouts and really diverse. One is a little lacking in the audio quality, but you know, with this show, we go to some far out places to get guests. If you remember Jim Chesner, we interviewed him about the box saga and we're hearing chickens and roosters in the background because he's outside. Well, sometimes that happens. And I interviewed someone with a lot of deep and unique knowledge, but they don't use Skype. They don't even use the internet, really, it seems. They just had an old flip phone. And yeah, that's a little disappointing for the sake of audio quality, but it really is a person who practices what they preach. We should all step away from Skype and Microsoft and Google. And so in a way, I actually really appreciate a person who's like, no, I can't get on the internet. I can't get on Skype. Sorry. <laughs> small thing, and I'm going to work to make it as good as we can make it, but all three content-wise, I'm really happy about. As for today, I do think talking about these Enochian sessions is amazing. I love the framing of the angels saying, look guys, all this magic is wrong. Good try, morons. Here's the real language of the angels. Now get it right. <laughs> and I sort of like the contempt, or at least the Framing of free will is almost a flaw, not a benefit, like a parent who can't get their kid to do what they say. Sometimes we do get in our own way, we get lazy or we get distracted. And I think you could say the path of being literally all you can be is a path that is near impossible to walk. A lot of people talk about achieving a light body or enlightenment or Christ consciousness, like really getting to those deep, deep levels. Most of us don't even meditate. So we're pretty far off. I don't think there's a lot of Tibetan monks listening, but that deep, deep work, I mean, you really can't let yourself get distracted with anything. So I really respect people that can walk that path, but I don't think I'm that guy. The angels would be pretty pissed at me. <laughs> It is kind of weird, though, because don't the angels have free will just in the sense that they could contact Dee and Kelly or not? 
they could give them the Anakian language or just not? Are they being forced to have these conversations? I don't know. But their attitude towards humans, I think, is just awesome. Not necessarily awesome in tone, but just awesome to hear about. Also, the way the gods and angels appear as horrifying monsters, in a sense. Like, what's all that about? It's not nothing. And if it's the same kind of trickster in play, or if it's related to other phenomenon over the years, I like to think that the biblical stuff is related to the cultural overlay. Maybe it's not. But from what I always hear, these things tend to present themselves in terms we understand. So in D's day, this is what it had to be. Maybe it's presumptuous of me to try to put my own spin on it or cut around the things I don't like. But that's kind of what I'm thinking. I don't really hear this stuff and feel the need to repent or get out my Bible or get myself right with the Lord necessarily. But it is hard to deny that's in there. I really do love this interview today, though, and it went by so quick. The first hour is great, but in the second hour, in that plus portion, we got more into some of the heady stuff about how magic relates to sexuality, and it is thorny, and people have lots of opinions, and just because I asked Jason for his, it isn't really an endorsement. I'm just asking a guy who clearly has thought these things through for himself. I want to know where he's at. And I want to try to fold it into my own thoughts about this stuff. It's no surprise that when we talk about elite magic and what they're doing behind the curtain in Masonic basements, it's a lot about raping kids. A lot about goat-headed orgies and shit like that. So a lot of people get concerned that when we start talking about magic, we're opening the doors to the sexualization of children and this weird culture and transgender, transhumanist stuff. and. I don't think it has to be that just to have a conversation about sex that isn't through a hole in the sheet. (laughs) I think Jason made some great points about our sexual repression and that you look at the church, you look at the sex scandals there, and maybe the repression of our sexuality, which is a natural outpouring of being a human being, when you close that off, it manifests in dark and disturbing ways, like getting it on with kids. Maybe that's the thing. And I also thought that was an interesting point. I mean, I'm giving away the whole plus show here, but I did also think it was an interesting point that we have these child trafficking problems, we have these pedophilia problems, and we don't address them because maybe as a culture, we can't even look at it because we're in slight denial, not this audience, but think about the wider culture. I mean, we might be in denial unable to address what's going on because of our sexual repression. And maybe if we just kind of chilled out and relaxed and allowed consenting adults to do whatever they wanted without the judgment that we tend to put on everything, maybe we then would be a little more open to actually solving those problems or at least addressing them and focusing on them. Right now, there's so much consensual, basic human sexuality that's lumped in as taboo or frowned upon. And so it's really hard to cut out what's really, really bad from what just might be a little too open for you. I don't know. Again, just ideas. I like to try them all on because every idea can be sold as appealing. But it's naive to think that you know 
all the results of what kind of society every implementation of an idea would manifest. You don't know where every school of thought leads, and there's almost infinite factors in trying to figure it out. So I think it's food for thought, a little taboo for some, but I think great points were made. Also in the Plus Show, I asked Jason about Dee and Kelly's most dramatic sessions. We talked about the Whore of Babylon in the context of sexuality and magic, talked about entities and empires and how there seems to be an attraction there, and that fun, fun chapter of the wife swapping. <laughs> and I do think that the fact that the angels wanted Dee and Kelly to wife swap is pretty weird, and it does make me think that they're kind of just tricksters. Maybe the angels were fucking with them more than we know. Maybe they were trying to break them down and break down their prejudices and try to push them into a new understanding. Or maybe they were just like, let's fucking mess with these guys. They had contempt for humans, so maybe that's what they were doing. I don't think we can take it all at face value, but the Anakian system itself does seem to be something. That is so exciting. When you look at it, you're like, holy shit, this is complex. This is like... 5D chess plus Sudoku plus spirits. <laughs> so really fun, provocative, and Jason knows his stuff. In Higher Side Chats land, the only thing I would throw out here news-wise is that there were some hints at some drama and people wanted to know what was going on. And I like to keep this stuff close to the chest. I unfortunately, in a moment of weakness, tweeted about how I was upset about getting paranoid and wanted to retract. I don't know what I said. Who cares, really? It made people wonder what was going on. You know I hate drama, and I hate getting sucked into this or that, and I just want to make my show and keep my head down for the most part. But I've historically been really inviting and open and had this, sure, let's do it attitude. I've met a lot of random listeners out in the world, even. But recently, it did get a bit weird. and. I always thought if it got weird, it would be threats from on high or something like that. I thought if anything got to me, it would be the deep state trying to say, dude, you got to chill out on this topic or that topic or we're going to kill you. But what got to me, I guess, just really seems to be overly enthusiastic, borderline stalkerish behavior. And I guess I'm not a real big stranger to that, but I usually laugh it off. And this time, a few things stacked up that I just couldn't laugh off. I don't want to elaborate, really. I'm lucky to have passionate listeners, and 99 out of 100 people can be pretty cool. But it only takes one weirdo to really freak you out, and I had close to a dozen. So I just realized that anything bothering me really just comes through a computer screen, and I sort of just need to back away from the screens. Maybe get a little less personal with people that I've only met online. And I think that's probably good advice for everyone. You know, maybe it's everything. Maybe just staring into the abyss like this does tend to get you down after a while. I saw some dark stuff recently that also kind of hurt the soul. <laughs> but this is the path I've chosen, and I think that I'm tough enough to walk it. And it's all good. But for a little while, I think I'm just going to make my shows get in there, post them, and get out until it's time to throw another one in the mix. But it's all good. It's whatever. For example, I really like having the Facebook group, but even that, you know, it's really one of the only centralized places for THC listeners. 
typically this audience is a one-to-one thing. You listen to the show, you go on about your day, that's it. It's really hard for any outside influence to corral that or infiltrate it, for lack of a less dramatic word. But now that we have X number of THC listeners all in one pool, there did seem to be a little fuckery going on. And what bothers me is people using the THC group for sales leads or to market their stuff to. Oh, here's a large group of people, a targeted segment, and I'm going to use it. Like, can't we just talk about the show and enjoy it without selling to these people? I don't know. In fact, some unknown admin for the page actually kicked me out of the group. Me! Can you believe it? (laughs) I'm back now, and it really is no big deal. But just, you know, if you only want to enjoy the show and you don't need any other extra stuff or community involvement, that is great. Because I can only be responsible for what goes on in the actual shows. These MP3 files are my domain, and that's it. And I'm going to keep doing what I do, trying to give you the best interviews with the best people, and the rest is all just fluff. Have a good time with it. Hang out on Discord. Hang out in the Facebook group. Whatever. But prioritize your life. Do what you can to break free of the chains of the debt-based system of rule and the slow roll of total control, and stay on this ride with me Sign up for Plus if you want the full show with all the twists and turns, or keep taking that free ride on the kitty circuit. No problem. (laughs) You can sign up for Plus at thehiresidechatsplus.com. You can check out the THC t-shirts at thehiresideclothing.com. Thanks for all your support. Big thanks again to Jason for being here. I don't think it'll be the last time. He was a great guest. Definitely check out his free magic course offering if you want to dig deeper. And I'll see you soon. Your move, Anakian angels, wife-swapping sorcerers, and magic-making architects of reality itself. Your fucking move. This is important. Hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia. Not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can. Ask you a question Cause I know your head Is still in the sand Don't be sheep till you slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed But you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit
you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Scarier every day Scary dark world No matter what you say Scary dark world Don't think we'll be okay Can't you see that we're so Oh, oh, oh. 